HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin leads the nation in the production of specialty cheeses, accounting for 47% of the total? To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. Hey, thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. This is Katie, HRN Executive Director, and I'm so excited to share with you our coverage from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. We are here live today at Charleston Wine and Food. Join us as we talk all things food. Come to Charleston, eat some seafood. Eat all of the seafood. Chicken fried chicken with chorizo steak and salsa verde mashed potatoes. So quintessentially like Southern fare at its finest. And have important conversations. We're also talking about professional women in restaurants and how underrepresented they are. People of color in restaurants and how they're not talked about. We get real with Food Network's Manit Chohan. Balance is BS. <laughs> uh, I, I, I was, yeah, I was told that uh, I wasn't going to be bleeped out. And find out about raising sugarcane with Chef Sean Brock. It's like being Indiana Jones or something. You never know what you're going to find. You'll come away inspired by the power of food and the food scene in Charleston. Here's Dr. Jessica B. Harris. Food is constantly in flux. Food is always moving. Food is the only real lingua franca that we have that allows us to connect with other folks. So tune in to Heritage Radio Network on tour at heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you get your podcasts. You can't go wrong. Yes, that's right. It's Monday. It's time for another episode of What Doesn't Kill You? Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and this is the Heritage Radio Network. We are broadcasting from Bushwick, Brooklyn, in the back of Roberta's Restaurant. Um, And today we're going to be talking antitrust. And you know, people who have listened to me for a while know that this has been a hobby horse for about two years, probably. And so it is my very great pleasure to introduce my guest today, um, Diana Moss, who is the president of the American Antitrust Institute, um, which she where she ascended to the mantle of greatness in January of 2015. She is an economist, and Dr. Moss has developed and expanded American Antitrust Institute's advocacy channels and strategies, as well as strengthened their communications with enforcers, Congress, other advocacy groups, and the media. Her work spans both antitrust and regulation with industry expertise in electricity, petroleum, agriculture, airlines, telecommunications, and healthcare. Now, this is the kind of CV that really makes me feel insecure. I just want to remind you, like, I don't have any of those accomplishments. (laughs) (laughs) 
It just kills me when I read this stuff. Um, I, I, hear, I hardly dare go on, but I, I'm going to just because you were at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission where you co- coordinated the agency's competition analysis for electricity mergers. Um, boy, you have an incredible career. I'm not going to go on just because we have so much to talk about. But if people want to learn more about Dr. Moss, you can go to the American Antitrust Institute.org um, uh, website and uh, learn more about her extraordinary work in the field of um, anti antitrust and regular regulatory practices. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me today, um, Diane. I really appreciate your time. And so I wondered if you would just start by telling people a little bit about the American Antitrust Institute and um, what you guys are doing there. Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me on. It's a real pleasure and, uh, and, and an honor and uh, always a, a much look forward to opportunity to connect with uh, the public on antitrust issues. So AAI is the leading progressive voice in uh, in antitrust advocacy. We are a nonprofit based in D.C. We're 20 years old this this year. We're very excited about that mm. that milestone, and we uh, do three things: we do research, we educate, and we advocate on issues relating to uh, fair competition and uh, promoting consumer welfare. We do that through a variety of channels. Uh, we put on conferences. We work with the Hill, the enforcement agencies, both state and federal, state and federal regulators. Uh, we communicate a lot with the media because it's a very important channel to consumers to understand sometimes complex mm-hmm. issues around competition. And so we um, we're, we're, we have a big network. We work a lot with other advocacy organizations in food and airlines and um, healthcare. So uh, it's a very effective way to communicate and unpack these competition issues, um, issues that all Americans should be very uh, concerned about and interested in. I couldn't agree with you more. <clears throat> I find the consolidation across the board of industry really terrifying. And and it's not even just in our country. It's like they're now sort of all these huge multinationals. It's what I had this horrible boyfriend when I was a teenager, but I remember him constantly railing about multinationals. And I always thought, what is he talking about? I don't know what he's talking about. Well, that was back... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that was back in the 70s. And <clears throat> by golly, he was right. I mean, it's it's these global oligarchy kind of, I, you know, I'm not even using the right words, but it's really, it's a very frightening um, uh, prospect to think that at this point, say, for example, we only have, what, four big agrochemical companies? We're going to talk about those in a second. But um, you had a background in energy, but you're most involved in agricultural cases. So tell us what you're working on right now with, um, in terms of agriculture, because that's what most of my listeners are interested in. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so AAI has a big program in food and agriculture, and that spans you know, the policy issues, the, the legal issues, the economic issues around consolidation, and various forms of um, what we call restrictive or anti-competitive conduct that's designed to uh, uh, exclude rivals from the market, usually mm-hmm. smaller, uh, more innovative rivals, but also agreements that are anti-competitive that restrain competition. So we have a long line of advocacy in agricultural biotech. We've been writing on Monsanto and, um, uh, you know, that string of mergers over mm-hmm. time. The use of intellectual property, for example, for transgenic seed, these seeds are patented, the traits are patented as a way to sort of control competition in the space. Um, we just advocated very strongly on, on the murder of Monsanto and Bayer. We wrote yeah. two pieces on that, explaining what, 
why we think the merger would be uh, re- really incredibly anti-competitive and anti-consumer, but also focused on important emerging issues around agricultural data or agri-data, uh-huh. uh, which is a really uh, good, you know, which is a big motivator for for consolidation in the industry now. So um, we have um, really pointed out. Uh, uh, that the level of consolidation, not only in, in ag biotech, but in processing, in uh, manufacturing of foods, in the distribution of foods, and in the retail retailing of foods through grocery, um, has really created what, what we think is a, a supply chain that looks like an hourglass. Mm-hmm. Meaning, um, you, we have just very few large companies in the sort of in the middle of the hourglass in the processing, manufacturing, and even re- and grocery, retail grocery segments. Uh, but we have lots of farmers, lots of growers, lots of producers of agricultural products, and we have lots of eaters, <laughs> a yeah. lot of consumers at the bottom. <laughs> yeah, and that's so, right. And um, so what happens in a situation like that is, you know, farmers and growers are selling into markets with significant market power. They're getting squeezed. Uh, at every step of the way, and consumers at the other end of the hourglass are 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 also getting squeezed because they're paying higher prices yeah. for essential commodities like food. So, so even though the companies point to their <clears throat> streamlined practices and their these mergers and acquisitions allow them to significantly streamline their their bottom line, as it were. I mean, isn't that the excuse for 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 all of these mergers and acquisitions? That is, it will ultimately benefit the consumer because of the you know the sort of more um, slick and slimmed down corporate structure will then allow uh, prices to go down. But do you, you know you don't see that as as something that really happens. We don't. We're very skeptical of that, and we've, in, in, in our advocacy, have really highlighted the fallacy of those arguments. You know, arguably, for the last 30 years, antitrust enforcement in the, in the, in the U.S. has been lax. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> enforcers have, have given great deference to these claims of cost savings and consumer benefits and other efficiencies that yeah. you're, you're, you were just speaking to. You know, the, the, you know, the scary part of that story is... Um, uh, you know, when companies come in and make their claims as to why a merger is, is pro-competitive, um, the agencies, meaning the U.S. Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission and state enforcers, um, you know, do a fairly rigorous analysis um, to prove that those efficiencies are actually related to the merger and that they are going to, uh, they are actually going to materialize. But but here's the, the problem. The, the hitch is that once the merger is approved, the companies don't have to come back and show that they actually realize those, those cost savings and benefits. So, you know, once they get their the green light uh, and the merger is a go, um, they're on their way. They don't they don't have to come back and, and, and show that they actually realize those those benefits. Mm-hmm. And and many of those benefits in our in our view and in our, our writings and our analysis have not been proven up. Mm-hmm. And so 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 consumers are not benefiting through more efficient operations and having cost savings passed through to them or having newer, better products 
you know, faster to market and that sort of thing. It's a, it's a real problem in our, in our enforcement regime right now. Would you, I agree. I, I totally agree. I mean, I've been following the class action suits um, that have been brought against some of the big poultry producers, for example, um, who are actually being attacked both by grocery stores and by um, farmers who are, you know, who got their first pay raise in, I don't know, seven or eight years, just this, this past um, winter. So, mm-hmm. you know, n- n- nobody, <laughs> nobody but the companies seem to be benefiting from these um, extraordinary uh, consolidations. But as far as that goes in the agricultural sector, do you see um, agrochemicals and seeds as kind of the most sort of scary you know, because when you, you obviously you guys have written a lot about the Monsanto proposed Monsanto Bayer merger, and as well as the Dow Dupont and the Syngenta ChemChina, um, you know, are those do those pose sort of more of a threat? Would you say overall to sort of national food security, if you will, um, and other and to farmers, or is it more like the sort of the companies that are processing and manufacturing, like in dairy and meat? You know, which which yeah, where is it worse? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Really, really good question. I, I, I don't know. You know, um, I, I think it's all. I think it's all pretty bad. And 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 one reason. Well, there's a few reasons, but one major reason is because uh, farmers are getting um, squeezed. They get squeezed on both ends. So yeah. With, for example, with mergers of of agricultural biotechs like Monsanto and Bayer and and um, Dow and Dupont, which went through a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, those mergers create market power, significant market power in genetic traits for crop seed and seeds and, ag- and, and chemicals. So farmers pay higher input prices. They're also paying high input prices for fertilizer because we essentially have a fertilizer cartel out there. Right. So they pay higher prices, but then they sell their commodities into, you know, into, uh, into markets where, where there's market power. So take flour milling, for example, the Arden Mills Horizon combination. Um, you know, there's a current, there are current deals on deck to further consolidate grain processing. Mm-hmm. So then they're selling into markets where there's also market power, but on uh, on the buyer side. And so they are mm-hmm. uh, getting squeezed on that end as well. So all through the supply chain, you know, you, you find different segments, the processors, manufacturers, the retail, retail grocers, kind of bulking up, similar wrestler style to <laughs> To be bigger, mm-hmm. so they can bargain more more effectively with their customers or their distributors. So that that's what's led to this sort of you know this bottleneck supply chain that we're dealing with. Um, bottom line is uh, the the essential farming community and growing community and producing community, which is critical to to the national health and the national security, is getting squeezed. And consumers are having having to make really really difficult choices about whether to to buy food, to buy high-quality food, or to pay their energy bills. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, it all combines, because it is such an integrated supply chain, it all combines to be, um, you know, to, to, to all be concerning. Mm. You're painting a very dark picture there, Diana. I'm I'm trembling right now. So let's let's <laughs> let's let's talk for a second about the legislation that was imposed in the earlier part of the 20th century, the Clayton Act and the Sherman Act, which and you know other legislative remedies that I undoubtedly do not know about, um, that were meant to prevent these consolidations to to a certain extent. Why why haven't those laws been invoked to slow down the pace of these mergers? And and when and when do you think this 
when did this merger and acquisition frenzy begin? Was this like back in the 70s and 80s? Was can we lay this? Let's let's say, let me ask this. Can we dump this on Reagan and Thatcher too? Is this <laughs> is this part of their nefarious plan? <laughs> well, you know, it's um it's it's the result of a lot of sort of uh converging forces. So so you know, the laws are over a hundred years old. They were absolutely designed to restrain uh the growth of dominant firms and trusts. Mm-hmm. And the exercise of market power, and um, and in antitrust, we talk about three different you know sort of problems. One is the mer- is merger control, combining firms either in horizontal or vertical combinations. Right. Another is monopolization, preventing large dominant firms from excluding their rivals, and another is agreements or what are often known as cartel types of agreements. So those laws were badly needed in the in the late 1800s and early 1900s. We went yeah. through a period up through the 50s where there was pretty vigorous enforcement. Uh, then in the 70s, there was sort of a, a new ideology took, took hold, and that was really driven by um, a school of thought, if you will, that uh, we should be giving great deference to um, the efficiencies that are generated by some mergers and certain forms of conduct. And mm-hmm. that really sort of galloped out of control for, for some time. Economists then were wrapped into the whole antitrust process. Economists, as you might expect, are fond of models and, and numbers mm-hmm. and quantitative right. types of analyses. And so we ended up with a system that really just focused on on giving lots of, of uh, wide berths to these efficiency claims but also just, you know, focusing a lot on just prices. Well, we all know that competition is more about price, right? It's yeah. about quality, it's about innovation, it's about service and variety. And and so we had a whole swath of consolidation, which is now, uh, you know, the, to pun badly, the chickens are coming home to roost, because <laughs> now we're dealing with industries with just a few large firms, high levels of concentration. And now for enforcement, it's a question of how do we – how do we deal with this? You know, yeah. how do, do we unwind some of these big mergers? Well, that's going to be tough. Um, we've got to really be vigilant about merger control. We've got to be vigilant about um, about um, forcing companies to prove up their efficiencies claims. And there is legislation in Congress right now. Senator Klobuchar from Minnesota has proposed some some really constructive reforms that would would really uh, update the laws and 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 hold. Hold feet to the fire on on these types of plans. Hmm. Interesting. I you know I I'm, I'm just uh, I'm sure that's not a popular. <laughs> well, no, may, I'm tipping my hand as like a you know total card carrying liberal here, but um, I can't imagine that it's all that popular to think of unwinding or otherwise curtailing um, what is clearly very lucrative for many members of Congress to support um, giant mergers and acquisitions. I mean, they just don't have any reason not to, because then they don't get the big bucks for their campaigns. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that's a really good point, but, but here, I, I'm going to make a kind of a counterpoint to that. Okay, please that's do. been sort of the, that's been sort of the, the thinking thus far. And, and antitrust does have a history of sort of political, of political orientation, meaning, mm-hmm. you know, Democrats have typically favored Islam enforcement, um, you know, they, they, they recognize the importance of markets, uh, uh, you know, as sort of a, a central focus of our democratic society and, and entrepreneurial freedom and consumer freedom. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Republicans, some Republicans, not all, have been more on the pro-business side of things. You know, that's changing. Why is it changing? Because 
we're now suffering the ill effects of declining competition, right? We've got just a few firms in all of our major industries. We've got big inequality gaps now. Um, uh, We've got slowing rates of startups, especially in food and ag, by the way. Mm -hmm. And so everybody, regardless of political leaning, should be concerned about that. We should all be concerned about protecting our markets, protecting uh, you know, the democratic values that sort of underpin them. Mm-hmm. And so I think we are seeing in Washington more of a, um, you know, more of a, uh, of an awareness of the importance of antitrust enforcement for those reasons. Hmm. And, and um, just to be clear, what does the USDA or the FDA, uh, you know, play any role in fostering competition? Or do they just go along and do what, you know, do what they're told by um, the Justice Department? Yeah, so they are, uh, you know, those are sort of sector regulators. Um, you know, they're administrative agencies, and they, mm-hmm. sort of, they sort of promulgate rules and standards uh, which govern how those their underlying laws and statutes are enforced. Antitrust is really different. Antitrust is law enforcement, right? right. I mean, the, the goal of antitrust is, is, is essentially to deter illegal behavior. And, and I know it sounds weird to talk like this in terms of antitrust, but it's it's absolutely true. We should remind ourselves, antitrust is law enforcement. Yeah. It is designed to to apply the laws and to make findings of fact, uh, subject to judicial review, about whether a merger is illegal, whether a form of you know monopolistic conduct is illegal, whether um, agreements are illegal. So law enforcers operate very differently than those than the sector regulators. But but importantly, they do uh, collaborate. They coordinate with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, USDA, for example, was just given a seat on <clears throat> on the CFIUS board, uh, which you know reviews mergers for uh, the purpose of whether they pose national security concerns. Oh right, a, a CFI. Uh, yeah, yeah, I know. I want to take comments from 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 USDA and from the. FERC and from the Federal mm-hmm. Communications Commission. So they do coordinate uh, in an important partnership. Right, yeah. That's such an interesting agency, the CFIUSA. I, I actually wrote an article about um, foreign acquisition of uh, American agricultural land, and I learned a lot about that right. agency. It's, 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 it's completely shadowed. It's a very opaque uh, committee, and... Um, yeah. They don't have to give, as I understood it, they don't have to give any reasons for why they decide one way or the other about issues. Isn't that true? There's no yeah, sort of transparency, okay. it public transparency. Is okay, yeah. and, it, and, and really the focus uh, for CFIUS is to evaluate whether a merger by, a ta- you know, an acquisition by a foreign company would pose national security concerns. Right. Uh, we are of the view, we are of the view as competition advocates that absolutely uh, the food supply chain is a national security concern. Yeah. Absolutely. So, in the in in the merger of Syngenta, which is one of the big ag biotechs, and yeah. ChemChina, which is the state-owned um, agriculture, uh, you know, state-owned company in China, right? We were very concerned about the ability of a Chinese company to uh, procure and uh, control intellectual property. Um, which is used by Syngenta uh, to produce new products and crops, yeah. traits. We were very concerned about that. Absolutely. Um, yes. But that doesn't mean that a CFIUS review or decision should trump, uh, that's another bad pun, I apologize, should trump <laughs> antitrust. Those should be very parallel processes. So the antitrust agencies should do their thing looking at these deals. CFIUS should do its thing and looking at 
the field, yeah. and, the, and the two should sort of uh, inform each other. Right. And yet they're a very powerful, I mean, obviously those are very powerful companies, and, and they will... Uh, they will exert as much pressure on legislators to allow, and the de- I suppose the Department of Justice to allow those those types of acquisitions to go through. I mean, I, I do want to talk about all three of those company, you know, all three of those mergers. So Dow and Dupont have they have merged. That is a done deal, right? Correct. And but those yeah. are both American companies, if I'm not mistaken. Monsanto they, they and Bear Bear is a Swiss company or German company. German. German. And I think Syngenta is Swiss, isn't it? That is correct. Okay, so and Chem China. So, you know, I you know, those two I find those the latter two are disturbing for the very reasons that you've just explained, which essentially has to do with intellectual property and ultimately food security for Americans going forward. So let's talk a little bit about why these mergers really do matter to consumers. Like what, when we talk about food security in the future, um, you know, why is that something that American consumers should be concerned about when uh, there are two foreign companies like ChemChina and Syngenta, for example, that are coming together uh, potentially and will control a large sector of the agrochemical and seed um you know, sector of this country. What, why, why, why does that matter to American consumers? Yeah, so a couple of reasons. So the, the international spin on this is a really important one. So if we have a foreign state-owned entity or state-controlled entity like ChemChina controlling a company that uh, does business in the United States, um, there may be a misalignment of incentives. So what, in other words, what's good for the Chinese, what the Chinese want to promote and to push to see Chinese uh, consumers, it, it may not align with what we want uh, to, to promote uh, here in the United States to benefit U.S. consumers in terms of high-quality foods, uh, safe foods, uh, diversity of foods, and, um, and, uh, and that includes a combination of both GMO and conventional, uh, conventionally bred crops. Right. So having foreign influence with their own agenda, very potentially very different looking agenda, um, you, you know, could spell tr- trouble for for U.S. consumers, and that very much is a is a national security concern. The other thing is when you have these big global footprint companies, um, you know, with different incentives and different constituencies and consumer bases to to address. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, removing a competition from the supply chain is is really potentially deadly because it's food. So one right. one concern is that if you only have a couple of suppliers in a supply chain, uh, because of consolidation, you you're really creating a lot of um, fragility and instability in that supply chain. Yeah. So, so what if there was a weather event, right, or a or an incidence of crop borne disease? or food contamination, mm-hmm. um, instead of having, you know, five companies that, you know, could be, could, you know, could step in uh, in a crisis like that, that weren't exposed to the, to the, to the shock, the disease, or the, the contamination, yeah. you only have two. Mm-hmm. So when you have two companies, you know, the chances of the whole supply chain going down are much higher than when you have a lot of competition, a lot of diversity, uh, where other companies might... Um, uh, might not be exposed to those types of shocks. Same thing goes with sort of. Same thing goes for sort of incidents of potential bioterrorism. Yeah. If you have two companies controlling a supply chain, the risk that a bioterrorist uh, kind of attack 
um, you know, taking down the whole supply chain is much higher than if you have a lot of competition and diversity. Absolutely. Today's program was brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. What do you think of when you hear Wisconsin Cheese? For me, I think cheese curds. Delicious, fresh and squeaky cheese curds. Or deep fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally any way, any time, any place. I think about Andy Hatch and Upland's Cheese, the farmstead cheese company behind Pleasant Ridge Reserve. I think of delicious, stinky Limburger and its long storied history. I think of Dunbarton Blue, made by master cheesemaker Chris Raleigh. I think of Ross Grand Cru Sirchois, which was named 2016's World Championship Cheese, and Satari's Black Pepper Bella Vitano, the 2017 U.S. Championship Cheese. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese with lush grasslands and a glacial water supply that produce the very best milk. Fourth-generation cheesemakers combine old-world tradition with new ideas and the highest standards to make innovative cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country. To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm on the line with Diana Moss, who is the president of the American Antitrust Institute. Um, And we were just talking about the impact on farmers of this wave of agrochemical companies um, coming together in mergers, uh, some which have gone through, like the like the Dow DuPont and others which are pending, such as the Monsanto Bear and the uh, ChemChina Syngenta mergers. And so we were we were just talking about how that squeezes farmers because then they don't have as much, um, you know, as many different uh, possibilities for where they buy their seeds. I mean, what what is the end game on this, Diana? What do you think will happen in the end? Like, if there's only four companies and then there's two, um, how do they maintain, you know, their economic viability when the supply chain is so consolidated? Well, I, I think the answer is they, they don't necessarily, um, you know, maintain their viability. <laughs> uh, if, they're, if they're getting okay. squeezed by paying higher prices for for seeds and, and chemicals and fertilizer because those industries have consolidated through merger, but then they are squeezed when they sell their, their products into uh, to processors and to manufacturers because those industries have consolidated significantly. Yeah. Um, you, you know, we call it the farm margin. It, it goes down, paying higher input prices, receiving lower prices for their commodities. So, you know, we're losing family farms 
um, you know, by the hundreds and thousands every year. And those farms are, are, you know, some of these farms are 100, 200-year-old farms oh, yeah. are are leaving the market. They're being bought out or consolidated with other larger organizations. Yeah. And so we're losing a really critical element in our in our farming community, which is the small farm, which is farmers who are <laughs> much more attuned to providing high-quality products uh, and selling those products to, to consumers who value um who value quality and diversity and, and sustainable farming. So it's a big problem. You know, the industrial food system is, um, you know, is a force to, 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 to contend with in the United States, but we also need alternative food systems as well. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, <clears throat> that's pretty much what this program is about. <laughs> that's kind of my hobby horse. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to just get a second to talk with you about um, the tariffs that are being proposed, the, 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 the possibility of a trade war with China, which is our third largest trading partner in the world, and, the, and, and also the renegotiations of NAFTA. Like, how do those play into, um, into the antitrust uh, picture? Is there, do they overlap in some way? I'm just curious, like, how, that, how those political machinations um, affect the big agribusinesses that you and I have just been talking about. Right. So, so there, there are a couple of angles to, to consider on, on that question. You know, any, any sort of tariff policy, as we're seeing with aluminum and solar cells and yeah. soybeans, um, it, you know, that doesn't, as an economist, I can say this, that doesn't really pass the, you know, pass the, the vomit test on, on trade 101. If we know that import tariffs will raise prices in the United States and will absolutely harm uh, harm producers in the United States. And that, unfortunately, with this latest round of, of tariff proposals, will include American farmers who are already being squeezed and struggling. So it affects antitrust to the extent that it affects prices in the United States. And whenever you do an antitrust analysis, you know, the, the first thing you go, you go to is to look at what, you know, prices have done mm-hmm. for the, the, the products and services. In question. Another thing about trade policy is, and it looks like with this president, you know, we're seeing uh, trade policy used as a protectionist uh, kind of device. And um, but trade policy shouldn't trump, you know, competition policy. It's really important to enforce the competition laws, you know, both domestically and to work with other countries in a cooperative way to promote open trade and. Um, and uh, and competition enforcement, but the trade law shouldn't be used as a, you know, as a as a as a cudgel, uh, and it's, they certainly shouldn't supplant good competition enforcement and cooperation across jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I think that's where this is heading, and and uh, I'm sure enforcers are very concerned about this. Yeah, I and yet there is a sector in the farming population. Just, I'm sure you know this guy. I'm interviewing someone named Michael Stumo next week, who is the CEO of the Coalition for a Prosperous America. And I learned about Michael through um, Mike We uh, no Mike Calicrate, and you know all of these guys are involved in the Organization for Competitive Markets and so on. And so I, I yeah. find it fascinating that um, that they are many of them are very much in favor of these tariffs and very much in mm-hmm. favor of renegotiating 
dating NAFTA. Um, and I, 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 oh, I can, because I'm liberal and a globalist in general, I don't see that you, I mean, even if you weren't, the cow's out of the barn. You can't really change what's happening around the world. Mm-hmm. If you want to play the game, you got to be in it with all of the players. And, right. um, and the idea that these guys are kind of, you know, cleaving to this idea of, as you described it, protectionist policies, um, particularly towards agriculture, but obviously with other industries in mind as well. I mean, I, I, it just doesn't make economic sense to me. And I'm, I'm by no means an economist. I can barely do math. So <laughs> if it seems incomprehensible to me, I mean, it, you know, I'm not alone in those deficits. I mean, can you explain why this would be appealing to some fact, some sectors of the agricultural community? Well, you know, I think I, I think the, 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 you know, the messaging, the, the public messaging on, on tariffs is, you know, Oh great! This is this. We need to protect American producers. Um, t- tariffs will protect American producers. Um, that may be sort of an immediate uh, response or reaction to that. But in the long run, once the trade system has done its work uh, and prices sort of uh, reflect the effect of those tariff policies, prices in the U.S. are going to go up. They're yeah. absolutely going to go up, and that's going to harm U.S. consumers, and it's going to potentially affect. Um, you know, the production of any good that uses soybeans or other commodities in uh, as an input into some final food products. Right. So, you know, it's sort of a staged kind of thing. Immediately it may sound attractive, but in the long run, when it all comes through in the wash, uh, we're going to, we're absolutely going to see higher prices and we're going to see, see it instances where it's harder for smaller rivals in the United States to compete. I think what you might be hearing from, from, these guys, and they are terrific, terrific people. They're smart and they're engaged, and they're yeah. you know they are advocates to the farming community. You know, NAFTA, the, the the you know the trade agreements are another story. So, for example, you know, country of origin labeling is, yeah. has been a very big issue, yes. and and it should be a big issue. I Why? Agree. Because if American producers are going to produce high higher quality products, beef and other meats, then consumers should absolutely be able to know that. Yeah. And be able to make choices about what they consume. Like I would, personally, I would pay a bit more to know that my meat was sustainably raised or or humanely raised or mm-hmm. or safer and and more secure. Yeah. Um, but the country of origin labeling has resisted that those labeling efforts, and so you know. But that's a that's sort of a trade agreement kind of issue, which is a bit separate. From the trade, you know, the trade tariffs. Well, my understanding of why country of origin labeling failed was essentially that, <clears throat> aside from the WTO levying the big fines, it was really because the very large packers, you know, the Cargills, the Smithfields, the Tysons, etc., their import. Well, maybe not Smithfield, but they're but they're bringing in, uh, you know, beef primarily from you know maybe 103 other nations, and they yep. don't want to have to label that separately. And they call it a marketing issue. Um, I call it uh, a way of duping the public, but that's my opinion. Right. Um, no, I, I agree <laughs> with you. A- absolutely. But remember, the consumer should be king. And unfortunately, yeah. with all this consol- consolidation, the consumer is no longer king. The consumer has less choice, less variety, less quality, we yeah. see less innovation. But, it, you know, labeling gives American producers a legitimate way to distinguish their products as being higher quality, Absolutely. Uh, from their from other rivals. Why shouldn't they be able to do that? I, I couldn't agree more. I, I absolutely am. I, not only that, I even said that on the Dr. Oz show when I was a guest. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, we just have a couple minutes left, so I'm going to ask you the final question here, and then you should promote the American Antitrust Institute shamelessly for the remainder of the program. But one more question, which is, what are, I mean, aside from the work that you do, or guys like the, you know, Organization for Competitive Markets, what are the remedies to fight back against these giant companies? Because, I mean, as we said before, you can't really, there's, there's really no mechanism to kind of unwind them or force them to break into different into smaller pieces again is there i mean there's no way we can like uh, put the cow back in the barn can we we can i mean you can to some extent put uh it's hard i mean but the genie can be put back in the bottle (laughs) or the toothpaste back into the tube and the way we do that um is through is through section two of the sherman act section two uh prohibits um uh you know monopolies that restrain trade and so um, unfortunately, the Section 2, we call them Section 2 cases or monopolization cases, are a really heavy list for enforcers. We, I can count the number of, of, of monopolization cases brought by the U.S. agencies in the last 20 years on two hands. Um, really? They're, they're, the standards of proof are really high. There's a lot of analysis that goes into them. But absolutely, Section 2 can be used to unwind or to break up um, uh, companies that have engaged in harmful uh, exclusionary conduct that 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 restrains competition and harms consumers. We saw that with the A AT and T case, right? right. Back in we sure the did. Day. Yep. We Back in the day, we almost saw it with Microsoft, but then there was a hard <laughs> swerve to a remedy that uh, you know wasn't very effective in that case. But um, Section Two is a big political lift. You need a lot of of support for that type of and that vigor of enforcement. So people shouldn't forget about that. Yeah. Um, cartel enforcement is really active. So so DOJ in particular is is busting tr- is busting cartels. You know, pretty aggressively. Uh, merger control is ticking up. You know, we've seen a lot of uh, mergers challenged and successfully blocked. AT and T, Time Warner is right now uh, in trial. Uh-huh. I think the government has a very good chance of winning that case. So we we need to see more more aggressive, more vigorous enforcement across the board. Mm-hmm. And do you see this particular administration or our current Congress as being um, more interested in doing that or less interested in doing it um, as compared with, say, the Obama or even the Bush administrations? Right. I think there's more interest. There's certainly um, in the House Judiciary Committee and the Senate Judiciary Committee and the you know, the economics committees and transportation and industry-related committees, there's a, there is interest. And we are seeing interest of a more bipartisan nature. Why? Mm-hmm. Because everyone sees the concerns with declining competition, big and, you know, growing inequality gaps, and the importance of protecting and nurturing our markets. And yeah. antitrust enforcers are the referees. They're like the referees in the markets, and we need them there. You can't play game, a game on a level playing field without a referee. So I think we have... Um, there's more appeal for vigorous enforcement. Um, I, with that said, I would, and, and we've seen some really good legislative proposals come out, and there will be more. Uh-huh. Um, with that said, I think you have to carve off, carve off what you're hearing from the White House, because <laughs> what we're hearing from the White House is not part of a coherent antitrust uh, enforcement policy or strategy. Right. It is really just targeted targeted, uh, you know, attacks on particular companies for political reasons. So I don't think right. there's any rhyme or reason to to what uh, to that rhetoric, but I do think 
in Congress and at the, at the agencies, we are seeing uh, a growing recognition uh, for the need for cohesion and a coherent policy. Right. Well, on that note, I'll, I'll let you go. But gosh, it's been a real pleasure to talk with you. What an interesting discussion. Thank you so very much. Um, now you can tell people a little bit more about American Antitrust Institute, how they can support your organization and learn more about your work. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. And, you know, we, we absolutely uh, spend a lot of our time talking to consumers, to small businesses, to large businesses that are often on the receiving end of, of mm-hmm. anti-competitive, you know, conduct or strategies. So, so we spend a lot of time talking to folks, hearing stories, putting our stories together, doing our analysis. I would encourage everyone to reach out to us. Um, to look at our website and, and uh, see what we write and how we write it at yeah. antitrustinstitute.org. And we certainly encourage contributions to the, to the organization. We are a nonprofit on a shoestring budget, right. and every little bit helps. Yeah. Uh, so we're very happy to engage with the public as much as we can on ABC. That's great. Well, thank you again, Diana, for joining me today. This has been really terrific and, and very, very informative and interesting for me, I, and I hope for everybody else. But really, it's all about me, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. It's been great. <laughs> okay. Until next week, folks, thanks to my uh, sponsor, Wisconsin Cheese. Love you guys. And thanks, as always, to my listeners for listening. See you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.